And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show them kindness of God, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Micah, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Micah, Machiah, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Now, the question that I'd like to begin with this morning is this. What do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? I suppose you could rephrase that. Why is God's kingdom such good news? We've seen over the last few weeks that whatever else the rise of King David has given to Israel, it has given them the kingdom of God. David is a king who took his throne with God at his side. Uh, More than that, David made sure that the highest throne in his kingdom was not his own, it was the Ark of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so here's the question, why is that so good? Uh, What do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? My, My guess is that if you went outside and asked the average person that you found, the answer that they might give you is, well, not all that much. Um, for, one, for one thing, there's the connotations of the kingdom of God. So just think about that word theocracy. It conjures images, doesn't it, of furious, enraged clerics uh, wielding holy books and calling for holy war, or perhaps of shrill Presbyterians domineering Hebridean islands and always racked by the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. <laughs> if we let God... If we let the people who say that they love God rule, then what we're going to get is something harsh and joyless 
and colds. On the other hand, there's the sort of founding myth of secularism, our secular society. Because we're so sure, aren't we, that whatever else we are, we are kind. As the curtains have come down on the age of gods, we as a society have become more gentle, more humane, in a word, better. Why would you want the kingdom of gods? It's a good question, isn't it? Perhaps, like me, you begin every day by praying, your kingdom come. I wonder, have you ever asked yourself, is that something that we actually want? And if we do want it, why? What do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of gods? We're in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and it is, I think, in lots of ways, a pivotal chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. And from one angle, you could imagine it as the absolute high point. David is in his pomp. The the king after God's own heart is putting that heart on display. And so if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like in action, and what it looks like when a king rules in the fear of the Lord, this is it. It's the high point. From another angle, it is the beginning of the slides. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the start of a new section that runs all the way through to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, And this is a bit of a spoiler, but it is all going to come undone. David is going to lose his way, and this is what he is going to lose along the way. In other words, if the question is, what do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of gods? The answer is right here. And you can summarize it in a word, and it's a key word. It comes up three times in this passage, verse 1, and verse 3, and verse 7. I wonder if you spotted it as we had it read. It's there again twice more in chapter 10. It is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. What we stand to lose, in a word, is kindness. Um, Not the kind of -of run-of-the-mill human kindness that you might find anywhere you, you want to go, but the covenant kindness of God. And the point that the chapter is making before David's the king comes crashing down is that the thing that the kingdom of God gives you more than anything else is this. Yes, David was mighty. Uh, Yes, David was victorious. Yes, he was good. And yes, he was just. But over all of those things... He was kind. Three points this morning. First of all, the king's loyal kindness and the loyal kindness of the king. Look down to verse one. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You might think it's a strange follow-on to the end of chapter eight. Chapter eight describes the way that David is victorious over all of his enemies everywhere he goes. And now you might think, hang on a second, Why is he just looking around for someone to be kind to? Is this a sort of a charity check, a kind of photo opportunity with one of those big comedy things where David can show that, you know, he's still one of the people? But if you're tempted to be cynical and think that this is tokenism, um, that's not it. The key to understanding this chapter is to remember something that happened all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, Maybe you remember that heart-rending scene When Jonathan and David, best friends, when David said goodbye to Jonathan for the last time, 
And you might remember that with tears in their eyes, Jonathan made David swear, and when you have won, and when all of your enemies have been cut off, when, when you've made it, David, please remember me. Would you show steadfast love, covenant kindness to me if I'm still alive? Would you show steadfast love, covenant kindness to my house? And so, of course, now at this moment when David has made it and all of his enemies have been cut off and he is victorious on every side, he remembers. And he says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Whatever the kindness of the Lord looks like, it's loyal, it's faithful. And that loyalty, it's drawn out by the contrast with Ziba, um, this servant. Look down to verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still the son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And it takes 10 chapters to sort of fully appreciate just how much of a piece of work this Ziba is. But I do think you begin to get hints of it even here in chapter 9. Ziba is a servant of the house of Saul. So how come that Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson and heir, how come Mephibosheth is not with him? Ziba has a massive retinue. How come Mephibosheth is not in, with him? In the rest of this chapter, Mephibosheth, he doesn't even name Mephibosheth. It's very striking. So far as Ziba's concerned, the only thing that's relevant about this boy is that he is a cripple in his feet. My guess is that Ziba, this servant of the house of Saul, saw which way the wind was blowing. Saul and Jonathan fell. Ishbosheth, Saul's heir, fell. He saw there was no future for the house of Saul. And so he quickly forgot his master and he got on with serving the new regime. But if Saul's servants have quietly forgotten their duties, David has not. Verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Are those last two words, of God, I think in lots of ways they're the key to the whole chapter. David is self-consciously acting as a king under God. And he knows that the Lord has shown chesed, that is steadfast love, covenant kindness to him, that the Lord has kept his promises to him, and so he wants to pay it forwards. In other words, what we're seeing is a, a reflection here of God's own kindness. And whatever else it is, it is loyal. It is loyal. We're so used, aren't we, to leaders who make promises on the way up, who have no intention of keeping them when they get there. And this year, I guess we're all going to be litter-bombed by party election leaflets and by manifestos and those sorts of things. And we know how to treat them with the scepticism that they deserve. Here's my prediction. Not one of the political parties will feel particularly obligated to keep any of their election pledges should they win and those pledges prove difficult to keep. Not so with the kingdom of God's. 
David had nothing to gain from Mephibosheth. He, he was a nobody. He came from a place that literally in Hebrew sounds like nowhere. And no one even knew that David had made this promise to Jonathan. It was in secret, just the two of them, that this king had made a promise. And so he kept it. The king's loyal kindness. I wonder, do you think you might like a king like that? Secondly, the king's tender kindness, because David is very tender in this chapter. Verse 3. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet, said Ziba. Uh, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Um, this story, actually, in verse 3 and in verse 13, is topped and tailed by the same fact, which is that Mephibosheth is lame. And if we've been paying attention as we've read our way through 2 Samuel, then that might remind us of 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, because it turns out that we, the readers, we know why Mephibosheth is lame. Do you know why it is? It is because when Saul and Jonathan's house fell, when Ishbetheth, the last Saul-eyed king, fell, Mephibosheth's nurse was so terrified that she fled with this little boy, five years old, under her arm. And she was so afraid that she dropped him. And from that moment onwards, since he's been barely out of nappies, Mephibosheth has been defined by his family's fear of the house of David. And with any other regime, that fear would have been absolutely justified, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know whether Richard III really did do away with the princes just in the tower down the road from here. It's not hard to imagine that he did, though, is it? Because the truth is that that is what new regimes do all the time, not David's. Verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. And there's no hint that David is just smiling for the cameras or that he's speaking through gritted teeth. Actually, it's quite a lovely scene. I mean, obviously, to begin with, he, he, he explicitly reassures Mephibosheth, doesn't he? Do not fear. But actually, the real tenderness, I think, comes in the verse before that. And for one thing, did you notice this as it was read? The narrator deliberately drops David's title. And so all the way through verses 1 to 5, he's King David, King David, King David the King. But here, when Mephibosheth comes into the room, he's just David's. Not David the emperor, lording it over his subjects. David, Jonathan's friend, speaking to his friend's son like a friend. Just David's. And then there's what he says uh, one word, verse 6, David said to him, Mephibosheth. Again, it's such a contrast with Ziba. Ziba, who doesn't bring himself to use Mephibosheth's name at any point in this chapter, you know what, he might not even know it. And yet the very first thing that David does is to use his name. And the second thing he says is don't be afraid. Again, the point is that at this moment, 
David is a mirror of the chesed, the covenant kindness of God. Mahatma Gandhi or Thomas Jefferson or Fyodor Dostoevsky, Google didn't seem to know the answer to this, neither do I, famously said um, that you can judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable members. It has to be said that our society, that is so confident that it is kind, can come up very short just here, can't it? Don't don't get me wrong, we're very good at being kind to ourselves. We're very good at letting ourselves off the hook. But when it comes to the old or to the unborn, when it comes to disabled people, our kind society can be so very cruel. Not so the kingdom of God. He binds up the feeble. He feeds the hungry. He raises the poor. He lifts up the needy. He is tender like rain that falls on the ground and makes the grass sprout. And so is the king who reigns under him. The king's tender kindness. Do you think you might like a king like that? And lastly, the king's generous kindness. Because there is no doubt that in this chapter, David is generous. Verse 7 again. And David said to him, don't fear For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, even if you stopped there, David has actually gone above and beyond what he promised to Jonathan. He never promised Jonathan that he would provide for his house. All he promised was that they wouldn't be cut off when David won. The mere fact that he has confronted the grandson of his great enemy who spent his entire life making David's life hell and not liquidated him, well, means that technically he's already kept his promise. And then on top of that, he's restored to him his family land and made him rich. Again, it's very generous. But of course, we've cut the verse off too soon because look back to verse 7. And you shall eat at my table always. Such a striking line. It's so striking that the author of 2 Samuel wants to make absolutely certain that you are in fact struck by it and repeats it four times. Did you notice that? And so it's there in verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. And again, in his instructions to Ziba, and look down to verse 10, um, he says to David, um, to Ziba, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And in case you missed it, verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The king's very generous kindness. It's lavish, isn't it? And to take the grandson of your enemy, who is actually still a potential threat to your throne, and to make him like one of your sons. It is unnecessary um, David has already given Mephibosheth everything that he needs, um, every, all the food that he needs, all the riches that he needs. And then he says, but it's okay, you don't need any of that anyway, because you can always eat at my table. It's kind. Um, David's table is not for the useful, and it's not for the strong. It is for the vulnerable and for the weak. And again, for the careful reader of Samuel, our ears ought to prick up at this point. You might remember Hannah's prayer at the beginning of 1 Samuel, how she prayed to the Lord, the rock, 
the God of reversals. And what does he do? He lifts up the poor from the dust. He raises the needy from the ash heap, and he makes them sit with princes. He gives them the seats of honor. And here it is. This is what it is like when a king rules in the fear of the Lord. The Lord has already lifted David up from the dust and given him the place of honor. A time was when David called himself a dead dog to Mephibosheth's grandfather. But now that dead dog is seated on the throne. And the king after God's heart is like his gods, with the same generosity, lifting Mephibosheth, the dead dog, from the ash heap and seating him at his table as a son. The king's generous kindness. Don't you want a king like that? And the point is this. Um, Just this is what we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God. And this is what makes the kingdom of God so good. God's loyal, tender, generous, loving kindness. In the flow of 2 Samuel, this chapter has a double purpose. On the one hand, this is about what we lose, because this is all lost. It's all going to unravel. Um, In the coming weeks, we're going to see David's loyalty undone, his tenderness turn cruel, and his generosity become poverty. Um, The gut-wrenching thing about 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that David didn't really follow through. And the reason is that he stopped being a king under God, sharing God's own hearts. And we'll come to see how that looked next week. But as David became like Saul, all his loyalty and his tenderness and his grace was left in ashes. I think this is a crucial point. And we as a society, we've conned ourselves into thinking that a less godly age is a kinder age. We've conned ourselves into thinking that a less morally upright age is a kinder age. And that religious devotion and unblemished integrity somehow make a society cruel. Now, of course, there is a kind of claim to godliness that is harsh and judgmental. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And there is a kind of claim to goodness that is burdensome and cruel. And the Bible has a lot to say about that too. But they are counterfeits. Real godliness, real goodness, is like the sun rising at the dawn. If David is not good, he cannot be kind. When David stops being good... He stops being kind. If the Lord Jesus were not good, he would not be kind. And the more we appoint leaders who are uninterested in the Lord and indifferent to his ways, the crueler our world is going to become. That's the negative purpose. What David lost when he turned his back on God and his goodness. But you know, you can turn that around, can't you? Because the whole way through 1 and 2 Samuel, both at David's best and also at his worst, David has only ever been an imperfect shadow of the better king that these books promise. A king who really would bring the kingdom of God near. 
And I don't know about you, but as I was thinking about 2 Samuel chapter 9, I couldn't help but think of dozens of episodes in the Gospels where Jesus outshines David's loyalty and his kindness, his tenderness and his generosity, ten to one. So think of the Lord Jesus standing by his disciples, dying for his disciples, whilst they are swearing that they never knew him. Think of the Lord Jesus calling Lazarus and Zacchaeus and Mary by name. Think of him reaching out and touching lepers. Think of him opening the eyes of the blind, making the lame to to leap, spreading a table for tax collectors and for prostitutes and even for Pharisees and for disciples. Every one of us is a Mephibosheth, a natural enemy of the king. Every Christian is someone that the Lord Jesus has brought close to sit and to eat at his table and to call him friend. It's one of the reasons that we know that the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, really was bringing the kingdom of God. It's one of the reasons that we know that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, really was the true son of David, because he was so kind. Because this is what a king after God's own heart is always like, faithful, generous, and tender. If anyone tells you that all the fun will be had in hell, don't believe them. Hell is cruel. The kingdom of heaven is kind. And the purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel is to make us long for this coming kingdom, to make us pray for this coming kingdom like Hannah prayed for this coming kingdom, to make us trust in this coming kingdom like David at the end trusts in this coming kingdom. The purpose of these books is to make us long for these coming, this coming kingdom. But you know what? You don't just have to long for it. You can begin to enjoy it now because the king has come. His table is open wide. If you've ever wondered what you stand to gain from the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, start here. Faithful, tender, generous, loving kindness. And his love will never fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this glimpse of what your reign, the kingdom of God, is really like. We praise you so much that we know your son, the Lord Jesus, and that in the Lord Jesus Christ, this kingdom has come near and we can share in it. We praise you so much for such faithful, tender, generous, gracious, lavish love. And we thank you for the king who rules over your kingdom. We we pray that you would help us to see the goodness of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we will be so struck by him that we would begin to share in this kind of kindness too. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.